But I feel like now that I'm in a leadership position, I actually even have more responsibility to be my authentic self because I want people that look like me, talk like me, listen to the music that I listen to, to feel like this is a place for them and this is a spot for them. And that won't change until we have more of me and you and you know some of my teammates in these leadership positions doing that and creating a new type of vision of what a leader in that space looks like. For so long, at least in venture capital, our leaders have been John Doerr, Bill Gurley, Mike Moritz, right? Like mostly white men. And so to envision yourself as a GP that's gonna be on the Midas list, those are your comparisons. Those, they don't look like me, they don't sound like me, they don't have a lot of similar attributes as me, and so it's very hard to envision yourself in those roles. And so for me, like, I actually view it as, it's not, I don't feel pressure to not be myself, I feel a responsibility to be myself, because I need people to know that like these are roles that they can fit into, and they can fit into without changing these like really important parts of themselves. Dímelo, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Quien Tu Eres podcast brought to you by Plural. You already know it's your boy, Pavel, bringing you another special episode with another very special guest. Now, the clip you just heard in the intro is with this week's guest, Jomaira. Before getting into the full conversation, let me give you a quick little bio on Jomaira so that you know a little bit more about her. Now, Jomaira is a partner at Reach Capital, which is an ed tech and future of work focused ventured fund. She was born in Orlando, Florida, to two parents who always believed that education was not only important to prioritize, but it was one of the few things that no one can ever take from you. With that mindset, Jamira devoted herself to her studies and eventually became the first person in her family to go to college. Relatable, right? Not only did she go to college, but she attended Stanford University, where she fell in love with education and ended up getting her master's in education, policy, organization, and leadership studies. She started her career as an operator at an ed tech startup called Bloomboard and eventually started her career in the venture capital world. Now that you know a little bit more about Jamira, let's get into the episode where, as always, we discuss the conflict that many of us face between authenticity and professionalism. Here you go. I mean, for me, when I think of authenticity, it's really around bringing and being able to bring your true self to any environment that you're in, right? And when I say true self, I mean the parts of you that you love and that you cherish and that you know make you really who you are. And you feel comfortable sharing those, right? And you feel comfortable presenting those. Like those are the authentic version of yourself when you don't feel like you're either hiding something or suppressing something. Um, and you also feel excited and happy about that version that you're sharing about yourself. Like that really is authenticity and, and feeling, you know, feeling true to yourself. It, it doesn't feel like work because it is who you are. I love that. Tell me more about like what that person sounds like, looks like, or what are some of those things or attributes or values that, that, that come up for you when you think about that person? Yeah. At least for myself. Yeah. 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 So for me, um, I think, you know, on the, I'll start on the physical side because this was, this was a thing that I had to really get used to and almost build the courage to be okay with, which is, 
Um, I have naturally curly hair. You're seeing it right. Like this is right out of the shower. I know folks aren't going to see the video, but you're seeing this right out of the shower. Like I have naturally curly hair. I remember in my, one of my first few jobs, I straightened it once and I was given the comment, um, wow, you look like such an adult now. Um, and someone else said, oh my gosh, like, do you have like a business, like an important business meeting today? And it made me feel like straight hair was then associated with one, looking like an adult, two, like being in a business setting. And so for years, I would only come to work with straightened hair. And that's not natural to me. When I grew up, when I was growing up as a child, I almost always wore my hair curly. Like that's just natural to me. It's honestly like from a pragmatic perspective, it's the easiest to do because I don't have to do anything to it. Um, and you know, when I was even growing up, like my grandfather would always ask me as a kid, like it was kind of a joke that we had, like, where are those curls from? And I would say, um, the Carolina, which is the city that my mother was born in Puerto Rico. Yeah. And so like, for me, my curls were actually something that mattered a lot. And for years I kind of covered it and I straightened it because that's what I thought I had to do to be in a professional setting. And so, you know, just like on the physical side, it's just like being able to wear my hair the way that it normally is. Um, also, uh, I used to be afraid of wearing my hoops to work. And this is like, so I, like, this is very a cliche for a Puerto Rican, but like I used to be afraid <laughs> of wearing my hoops to work. And then I was like, one day I was like, you know what, screw it. Like, I like my hoops. I like how it looks like it's what I want to wear. And I started wearing it. So like just on the physical side, it's like wearing the things that feel comfortable to me, like that is showing my true authentic self. Um, I'm not saying like I need to wear like, you know, my Puerto Rican shirt. Like if I wanted to, I could, but like that doesn't feel authentic to me because I really don't wear that very often. Um, like the, the flag is a cape, right? Like maybe Yeah, the flag is a cape. Yeah, no, I, you know, I love it on others, but like it's not authentic to me. Like I'm not wearing that around, but um, you know, so there's like the physical piece and then, you know, there are other aspects. I think the hardest thing for me, honestly, when I was getting into professional setting was building relationships with people around commonalities related to like, um, music artists, uh, movies, TV shows, like just pop culture, because so much of me growing up, you know, I was growing up with parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles that all came from Puerto Rico, right? Like, and so, so much of the culture that they have is very much based and rooted in what they knew growing up. And so most of the music I listened to was salsa, bachata, reggaeton, right? I didn't listen to like the indie rock, like whatever it is that people listen to when they were growing up here, or when their parents were, were growing up here. And so for me, that like, I remember people would bring up, you know, artists or bands and I would Google search it. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I know what Journey is. Um, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> like, I recognize songs from soundtracks of movies, but like, I didn't really, it was not core to my culture. And so that, I think, it's, it's actually interesting. That changed very recently where I now joined a firm where there are multiple Latinos at the leadership level and across all levels. And all of a sudden, 
you know, there were people that understood and, and had very similar backgrounds as me growing up. And so that feels really exciting and it's a new experience for me. But, you know, to get back to your, your, your original question, the feeling of authenticity is really just being comfortable and okay with, with the differences, right? Like I don't mind the differences. I think the differences are totally fine. Um, and it makes for a really beautiful and diverse culture. But being able to, I don't have to hide the fact that I'm like listening to reggaeton in my ear, AirPods as opposed to like, I really don't know what people listen to, but like smooth jazz. I, don't, I, I really don't know what people listen to on their, beats. <laughs> when they're, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, hiding those parts of myself, like that's what feels authentic. Yeah, no, that so much of that resonates with me. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with differences. Like you said, I think it's beautiful. I think it's even... I think it's even beautiful to expand our preferences, right? I think the challenge comes in when we feel the need to expand some of those preferences, whether it be music or food or any of those things, just to be able to advance, right? Because we're being shamed for our differences, right? Um, I, I, I'll tell this story all the time on the podcast, but I used to literally dedicate time on the weekends to study Bruce Springsteen because oh my I'm God, like, yes, yes, that's what I should have said I should have said Bruce Springsteen I'm like I literally I don't get the obsession I'm like who is this guy they even carry his book around I'm like why yes, yes. I'm like yo Mark Anthony over Bruce Springsteen any day but like all right so even at work or in client meetings like it would always come up because I don't like is he ever stop gonna go on is he is he ever gonna stop being on tour he's always on tour Wait, he didn't die? I feel like he's still alive. I feel like people are always talking about him. <laughs> people talk about him like he's dead. Like, I honestly, the way people memorialize him and the way people, like, carry around their book and stuff, I'm, I'm like, I thought he was dead. Like, I don't even know. I, oh, my God, I feel so bad. People are going to be listening to him and be like, this girl, like, thought this guy was dead. And I know he's super famous, like, but look, like, I literally, I don't, I, I understand why people love him. I get it. But, like, for me, I'm like, why don't they treat, like you said, like Mark Anthony like this, or even like Celia Cruz, right? Like, I'm like, look, yeah. I'll carry around her book all day and night, but Chris <laughs> Springsteen, I'm like, I just, it doesn't do it for me. Nah, I get it. I get it. Yo, I used to, like I said, I used to dedicate time on the weekends. Like, instead of watching the show that I watched, like, I, instead of watching Insecure, for example, like, I would watch uh, Riverdale. Like, I saw like three seasons of that just to be able to go into work when they ask me, like, oh, what did you do this weekend? I'll be like, oh, I fi I'm finally caught up in Riverdale. And they'd be like, oh my God, what did you think? Because that commonality breeds conversation. If I would have said, right. oh, I'm watching, I don't know, um, Selena, the, the, the new Netflix series, and be like, oh, yeah. period, end of sentence, end of conversation. Exactly, exactly. Like, how were those experiences for you? Like, did you well, prepare yourself for those Monday morning? Like, how was your weekend conversations? Like, what did you do? Um, so it's funny because... Uh, well, actually, a few things that you said made me think of, um, like, one, the challenge to your point was not that, like, people ever looked down on what I was watching or what I was listening to. It was just, like, I would get a blank face back. And what do you do with that, right? Like, that doesn't help you actually build relationships, which we know are so important to succeed in the workplace. And so, like, that for me was the biggest challenge. Like, I never felt like any of my coworkers looked down on me, except for the hair thing, you know, like I thought those comments were actually pretty explicit. Um, but, 
in terms of what I did, I cannot say I did a Bruce Springsteen like deep dive. I just like accepted <laughs> that I would never get that. I, I, I was like, it's just, it's going to go over my head. Um, I, I'm like trying to think like if I went out of my way to really, <laughs> to like really understand what other people are, you know, excited about and what they're focused on. I will say like, I did try to develop hobbies that other people were really into because they also were like into a lot of like different and not saying hobbies are a bad thing or even hobbies are like a white people thing but like you know just I don't know like sailing and like oh they love playing this one thing what is it called I shouldn't call them they like people love <laughs> sorry this is like so awful people love playing um Oh, what is that? What's that game that they play on the lawn? It's not like bocce. Oh, uh, bocce. oh I don't know what that is. Yeah, see? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say the one that they, that they toss the sandbags into the holes. Oh, cornhole. 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 Yeah. They, no, white people bocce. love cornhole. They love cornhole. I actually like cornhole. I'm not going to lie. I'm actually I only because I'm good at it. <laughs> okay. Okay. I do too. It's kind of fun. It's easy. It's easy to learn. Yeah. But like bocce, when people first said bocce, I'm like, what the hell is bocce? Um, and it's not as like intense as the name makes it seem, but all of these different things, I would actually look it up and be like, oh, okay, now I get, you know, what they're, what they're dealing with. But it was a lot of just like researching and like getting up to speed because a lot of these things I didn't know before had done before. But my thing is, and I think my biggest gripe is I actually don't mind doing that, but I don't think they ever did it for the stuff that I would talk about exactly right like no I, I always I always said like I wish I wish white people and I'm generalizing right we're, we're doing generalizations but like I wish white people faked enthusiasm as much as we did sometimes yes <laughs> yes like, like you know how many times I like was like oh Bruce Springsteen so awesome wow <laughs> they never did that for Mark Anthony no. I don't understand that's so funny yeah it, yeah yeah um yeah because i i fake it all the time well i used to fake it um and i'm just like oh my god yeah share the link share the recommendation i'm never visiting that lodge in vermont i'm not doing it a hundred percent i'm never going camp oh my god camping camping no, camping that's i'm never gonna thing. do it camping that's the other thing that was a big thing for me like people seeing people go on vacation to go camping i was like <laughs> why i and then they would like they're like, do you want to go camping? Like, oh, you know, why don't you like, like they would, I, I would often get, and it was like, it was trying to be funny. I would often get a lot of, um, are you allowed to curse on this? Yeah. Oh, um, I would often get like a lot of shit for people for like, we would go outdoors for an outdoor activities. And I just, you would see in my face. I'm like, why are we in these trees? <laughs> I don't understand. And I tried to explain it one time to my coworker where I was like, my parents busted their ass so that we could have a roof over my head. Like you think I'm going to willingly choose to sleep outside on the floor no, I, my parents busted their ass. I busted my ass so that I could stay in a five-star hotel. I'm not going to stay outside and rough it for what? I roughed it already. It's not fun. <laughs> Yo, this is so true. Oh my God. Yeah. It's like, why, I'm not, I don't want to go back to the projects outside too. Like, I don't want to do that. Like, no, for what my, honestly, like if I called my mom and I was like, oh, I'm going to go hiking and camping. She's going to be like, are you okay? Should I send you money? 
Like, do you need to stay at home? Cause like, what am I doing sitting outside? If I wanted to like sleep outside, then, you know, we wouldn't have like worked so hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> sorry. Every uh, time you like bring something up, I, you unlock a memory. Every time you say like a key word, I'm like, Oh wait, yes, that was awful. <laughs> Uh, no, nah, but I'm, I'm glad that you brought up like authenticity, right? Cause I mean, I'm sorry. I, I love the definition that you brought up with authenticity. Cause I think most people always think about physical appearance, but there's so many things that go outside of the physical that, um, right. is important, is important to, um, discuss as well. Like I know, well, let, let's get into the physical actually, Cause I think, I think that one's really important. And that's something that a lot of people have brought up previously. You know, it's funny. Like I never knew I had curly hair until quarantine. Because, you know, during the pandemic, I had to let my hair grow out. We couldn't get haircuts. Right. My hair started to get curly. And I was like, mom, is, where did I get this curly hair from? I was like, is your, is your hair curly? I've never seen my mom with curly hair. But apparently, she swears it's naturally curly. But at this point, you know, she's older, retired. That shit don't get curly no more. She, she swears it gets curly. It does not get curly. <laughs> um, my, but no, it's because mom. every single yeah. day, I was just going to say, every single day, I would see my mom go to work and every single morning it's with the rollos. She straightened it out yep. and she swears it's because um, she likes it like that. But I really think she did it to conform to people around her and growing up. So she's, I mean, now she's retired and she literally still does it just to sit in the house because it's such a routine at this point. Totally. Yeah. Totally. But it's interesting too. Like when you, sorry, you said like growing up, you said it wasn't necessarily you said it wasn't necessarily encouraged to straight your hair. Like it was fine growing up with curly hair though, right? It's funny because like, I think I, I will make an important dis distinction, which is like, I liked my curly hair growing up. I think my mom and, and I think my family in general, you know, appreciated my curly hair. I think my mom, for similar reasons as maybe your mom or similar reasons as a lot of people thought like straight hair was the right hair. And so my mom had very curly hair as a young person. Like the pictures, I mean, like they're just, and her, her, her curls were really tight too, like much tighter than mine. Um, she had like brown curly hair. My mom, as long as I've known her, has had short, straight blonde hair. Blonde. Oh, blonde. Blonde. This woman went blonde. Um, so, and similar to, to your mom, probably every night I saw her in a doobie, like just to maintain the straight hair. The doobie. <laughs> the doobie. <laughs> to maintain the straight hair. Um, and every morning she got up and she straightened that. She did the work. Um, and then from, you know, for my hair, like she would, like if I told her, you know, I want it straight, it's fine. But I, re I distinctly remember there was one moment when I was, I don't know, maybe five or six, where she got the box, the relaxer box um, that they sell at like Walmart or whatever. And, um, and she like tried to do a relaxer on my hair. And for folks that are listening, don't know what a relaxer is, a relaxer helps to like straighten your hair, um, and take the curls out. And I remember like sitting in my bedroom and she was doing it on my hair and it ended up burning my scalp. Um, and so like, I just like remember being so angry and I was like, I didn't even want this. And you burned my scalp because like, you felt like this was the right thing for my hair. After that, she just like, let it go. And she was like, you're going to do whatever you want to do with your hair. And so I wore it curly almost every day until I went to college. Um, and even through college, I wore it mostly curly that only changed when I entered the, the workforce. Um, but 
I think she also fell into that belief that straight hair was the right hair. And to, and to this day, she still wears her hair primarily straight. She's tried to get that curl back. Um, but because of all the treatments, because she's yeah. done the keratin, the relaxers, all of that stuff, like her natural curl is basically gone at this point. And so it's very, it's like a very mild curl at this point. What? No, yeah, that I've heard that so many times. Um, what you mentioned, like going into the workforce, and we spoke about this a, a few times, right? But like, what was that moment when you said, oh, shit, I should probably do this? Yeah, I should probably straighten my hair. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was that day that I got those comments. Um, because so I had even so you walked in that day with the curly hair, ready no, for your first day, hair. for example. Oh, so okay, I, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I started my, you know, my first job, I wore my hair primarily curly, like it was fine. And then my second job, um, I also like started with the idea, like, oh, I'm gonna wear my curly hair. And then one day I decided I was gonna straighten my hair. I cannot I can't remember the reason for why. I maybe just wanted to change things up, but I straightened my hair and I got three comments, I mentioned two of them, but I got three comments that day that were all related to like, wow, you look like an adult now. Oh my God, do you have an important business meeting? Like they were just like, people loved it. Um, and getting those comments, I was like, oh, it's really, you know, I know they meant it from a good place, but to hear, like if they had said, oh, your hair looks really pretty today or like, wow, like you did something different. I think it would have been different, but the words that people cho chose to use, like you look like an adult, which presumes that with my curly hair, I didn't. Um, or, oh, do you have an important business meeting? Which presumes that my curly hair would not be the right fit for an important business meeting. Those specific words that they use, it's really hard to hear. Because I had not, again, like I had gone my whole life not associating my curly hair with anything in particular. It was just my hair. And from there, from that point is when I started straightening it, straightening it almost consistently. Um, that changed, like during the pandemic in particular, that very much changed. Um, I like almost always wear it curly now. Uh, but it's like, you know, that still stays with me because as much as people don't want to admit like I think people like try to try to feel like oh no like of course I accept and I'm inclusive of all types of hair I think there is this unconscious bias of curly or your natural hair is still not like it's less than and so I've asked people I've now gotten to the point when people compliment my straight hair um especially like if they work with me consistently I always I actually explain to them I'm like I appreciate your comment and I take it for what it is. That said, like, I want to make it very clear that like my curly hair is not less than my straight hair. It's just a different hairstyle. And I want you to also recognize that as well. And like the implications of what you're saying. Um, and I've actually said it on Twitter as well. And a lot of people of color that have natural curly hair, it resonates with them because they've had very similar experiences. Yeah. And, and it's not even, just curly hair like there's so many different hair textures that are not straight that i think have the same association to it totally. um yeah i'm i'm curious like when did you get to that point where you went back to you know feeling more authentic if you will like was it was there a moment was it a build-up of moments just like when did you start doing that when did you get that confidence i think it was definitely a build-up of moments um you know you start with the the hoops and you kind of hide it behind your hair 
you mm. um you know you you start with like a little bit of curl like I think it's definitely just like a buildup of moments. Um, and you know, I built it up now to the point where I will tell people directly and say like that comment has this implication, even though you don't intend it. Um, I do think sadly that comes with almost a little bit of seniority, right? Like now I'm a partner at a fund and, um, I feel more comfortable telling someone these things because I don't actually fear about the repercussions or fear that it will affect my job. And so I think it just comes with comfort with yourself and also a little bit of seniority because let's face it, right? Like when you're an entry level, you're just starting, you're pretty nervous, right? Like you, you want job security. You want like people to like you, you want people to, you want to get promoted. And so you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to be the squeaky wheel in that office. And so you kind of just keep your mouth shut and you keep, and this is for better or for worse, right? Like I'm not suggesting someone does one way or another, but I can understand why when you're early in your career, you stay more quiet and you try to do all the things to appease your coworkers because you want to do well in the job, um, in, in the job and in the office. Um, with time and with age and with comfort of like, look, like, what are you going to do? You're not going to fire me because like, I'm such an integral part at this point of this team. Um, and so now I feel a lot more comfortable just being myself and, um, and, you know, saying what's on my mind and, and to the point that I said earlier, and what I love now is the team that I'm on. It's the most diverse team that I've ever been on yeah. ever. Um, you know, in leadership positions, we have a black woman, myself, a Latino man, an Asian woman, like we have, like, we're a majority woman, all types of colors, backgrounds. And so that for me also makes me feel a lot more comfortable. I love that. I try to tell people as well around like some of the, cause I have authenticity goals that I've started doing recently, just like people have savings goals. Like every month I'm going to save X amount of money. And by the end of the year, I'm going to get this. I started doing just like, what is something that I feel really uncomfortable about that mm. I can try to like challenge myself to see how it would feel. And like, I remember when I first started doing um, like virtual meetings, you know, during quarantine, I was like, oh, I need to have a plain white background. Like <laughs> th this is the only thing that people are allowed to see that I don't want people to see my messy room or all these things. And I slowed it just like turning the camera I was like, this is more comfortable. I'm just going to do that. And eventually it got to a point where maybe I'm just going to display some art in the background that I really like. Yeah. Right. But I love the idea around like, you don't have to go all in and just like show people everything. Right. Like I love the idea of just like trying certain earrings on trying like a subtle little hairstyle or, or like mentioning a certain word that you felt really uncomfortable about saying, you know, that isn't necessarily yeah. inappropriate, but you know, it's just part of your everyday speech instead of like going right. all in. I think you learn so many different pieces about yourself doing that. Totally. And I've even, um, now I think this in the past year or so, I've been probably more vocal than ever before on these topics. And I recently did another, um, podcast or a video recording and it was around also this concept of authenticity and was a little bit more about my background in general and I actually shared it with my team and I was like hey you know you don't have to listen to it but this is probably one of the most authentic panels I've ever done in in my life and I encourage you to listen to it and all of my team members did and they all said there's a lot that we learned that we didn't know and again this is a team that like it's the most diverse team that I've ever worked with but even then there's still a lot of learning you can do to 
better understand your team members. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's so fascinating too. Like you as a leader, I, I, I asked a lot of, cause, cause I think there's levels, right? Cause when you said like, when you're first starting out, like you may feel more pressure to like fit the mold or right. not show everything, but at the same time, you kind of have less to lose. Right. And you're also, you're also, you know, when, when you join a company, they're like, you're, you're a representation of the company. Yeah, whatever. Like at some point it's really the executive, let's be real. You know what I mean? Like, right. <laughs> so like, I always wonder like, in a leader in a leadership position do you feel even like pressure like from an authenticity standpoint because like you're not only representing yourself you're representing more so like the brand and the company so i i don't know like i i i envision myself in a leadership position feeling pressure to like be less of myself because i think people are now going to judge mm-hmm. me and associate that with the company you know what i mean that's interesting um so i actually don't I, I would even flip, I would flip it for myself. And again, remember, like we're a venture capital firm. We don't have public shareholders. Like, you know, we might be in like in a different situation, but I feel like now that I'm in a leadership position, I actually even have more responsibility to be my authentic self because I want people that look like me, talk like me, listen to the music that I listen to, to feel like this is a place for them. And this is a spot for them. And that won't change until we have more of me and you and, you know, some of my teammates in these leadership positions doing that and creating a new type of vision of what a leader in that space looks like. For so long, at least in venture capital, our leaders have been John Doerr, Bill Gurley, Mike Moritz, right? Like mostly white men. And so to envision yourself as a GP that's going to be on the Midas list those are your comparisons. Those, they don't look like me. They don't sound like me. They don't have a lot of similar attributes as me. And so it's very hard to envision yourself in those roles. And so for me, like I actually view it as it's not, I don't feel pressure to not be myself. I feel a responsibility to be myself because I need people to know that like, these are roles that they can fit into and they can fit into without changing these like really important parts of themselves. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, it's it's almost like you're becoming a mirror for other people. Like they're not going to see everything of themselves in you, but they might right. see something that reflects back on them and they're going to say, "Oh, I can do X now that, you know, she's doing that." Right. One of my, you know, one of my favorite stories that I often like to tell is um there was a young student at Stanford that I was talking to a few years ago. She was a computer science student. And I asked her why, you know, why did you decide to go in this route? Why did you decide computer science? And she told me, I went to, she did like this like STEM summer camp program. And she went to like a mentor happy hour or something like that of existing software engineers and computer science students. And the first CS um, person that she met was a young Latina like her. And so for her, her only understanding of what a computer science student or software engineer was, was a woman that looked like her. She didn't realize that it was an industry dominated by white males until she got into classes at Stanford. But can you imagine if like her first interaction wasn't with that person, was with people that didn't look like her, she might've chose a completely different route. And so, even though we know there's an existing state of the industry, like having those first few interactions that determine your impression of a career or of a role or a pathway, like they're so important, they're so formative. And so you want that impression to be one where 
that person feels like, oh, this is possible. Like I'm seeing it happen in front of me. Like this is a possible path for me. Yeah, no, that, I, I love that story. And to think that like we can be some of those first interactions for so many different people. Right. Um, I'm curious too, cause you're, you're in venture capital and I'm wondering how many people you see like you in your interactions. Um, I remember this one story, for example, um, John Henry, he used to work, he's, he's Dominican and you know, he founded Harlem capital and all these things, whatever. Um, but it was interesting. One of these things that he mentioned, which was fascinating to me, he was like, in me trying to raise money for the fund to then go fund, you know, um, businesses in our portfolio, you know, all these conversations that I was having, not one time did I ever meet a Dominican. Like it just, it just wasn't, it just wasn't a thing. Um, and he said, you know, met a lot of white people, met a lot of different um, ethnicities and cultures. Um, there were even a lot of very wealthy um, black individuals that he met, but Latinos, he, he never encountered or not as often. Um, yeah. And I think that's, it was just so fascinating to see, you know, because um, it's yeah. one thing, you know, getting diversity in the door in some of these like entry level positions, whether it be engineering or sales in, in some of these tech companies, but um, VC, when you actually try to see and like build a relationship with like the wealthy, very wealthy individuals, it's interesting and, and maybe even apparent as far as like how diverse, how, how, how the um, diversity that pool is. Is that something you experience too? Yeah, so the thing about venture that's important to remember is the the amount of people in venture, first and foremost, like absolute number of people is very small. Like the asset class is large, but the asset class relative to other asset classes is very small. And so like already we have a small pool of, of people and it grows very, very like slowly over time. It's not like an, um, a venture-backed startup that they raise $100 million and all of a sudden they're hiring 1,000 people. Venture firms will hire maybe one person a year, like maybe, depending on the size of the firm. And so already it's hard to even change it in terms of demographic. Like it will take decades before it materially changes. Um, so that's the first thing I will say just for context setting. But yes, to answer your question more directly, I very rarely ever meet people that look like me. Most people in venture are um, white or Asian males and 75% of venture firms don't even have a female partner. So already they're like, it's gonna be very hard to, to find uh, people that, that look like you or even share the same gender as, as you at this point. Um, and I think that's slowly um, starting to change to the point that I was making before, but there's also been more concerted efforts to bring together groups of people that are similar. So um, this actually started with, uh, it started with All Raise. So All Raise uh, was created by actually my former employer, Aileen Lee. And it's focused on bringing uh, together female VCs into one space. Shortly after that, Black VCs started to bring together Black venture capitalists into one space. And shortly after that, Latinx VCs started um, to bring together Latinx uh, VCs into one space. And it was partially driven by this idea of like, there's so few of us that we should be one, building relationships with one another, but we also should know one another and we should lean on one another. And 
what's been so great to see is like in the Latinx VC, like Slack channel and the WhatsApp, people are like, hey, I need help with this. Or, hey, I have this deal. Like who wants to do it with me? And we're getting tighter and we'll only be stronger the more that we build connections across our community. Um, so sadly, the reality is the numbers are still low for Black and Latinx VCs. We're basically a rounding error um, as part of the absolute pie. But uh, we are building relationships stronger than ever and, and hopefully it will change over time. I love that. And you're part of that change, which is beautiful. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> All right. La last question, because I know you have things to do and you're busy. Um, you know, your journey isn't over, right? You're continuing to evolve. You're continuing to challenge yourself. But I love that you've, you know, where, where you did start to where you are now. I think it's beautiful. And like I said, you're, you're, you're creating the representation that so many people need. Um, so I'll end with this last question. What's one thing that continues to empower and inspire you to continue being your most authentic self? It's one, um, the responsibility that I feel to create, like you said, this mirror for the upcoming generation that's entering a range of fields. But even more personally, I have a younger sister who's seven years younger than I am. She's currently in college. And I want her to know that as a Latina that's entering the workforce, she, I don't want her to go through the same journey that you or me have gone through, which is like realizing, you know, like starting off, you're kind of scared, you're timid, hiding parts of yourself, and then slowly coming out of the box over time. I want her to enter the workforce, like full steam, feeling like she can be her authentic self. And I want her to have that I want her to be empowered in that way. I want her to feel that also pick the right employer where she can do that in the workplace. And so there is, you know, this kind of broader responsibility I feel, but even more specifically, there is a personal responsibility that I feel for, um, for my younger sister. That wraps up this week's episode. Really appreciate you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please do us a favor, subscribe and leave us a review. This just helps ensure that these stories get heard so that we can ultimately live our mission of redefining professionalism. Thank you. Tune in next week for a new episode.